A Chicago baseball team that at times drew bigger crowds than the White Sox and the Cubs? What? This is the story of the most dominant team in black baseball for more than 20 years, and the man who led them, Rube Foster and the Chicago American Giants. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we dig into this, I want to thank my friend Bill Brashler, who wrote, among others, the biography Josh Gibson, A Life in the Negro Leagues, and the fictional Negro Baseball League-themed Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars, which was later turned into the film of the same name, starring Billy D. Williams, James Earl Jones, and Richard Pryor. Bill kindly sat down for a coffee with me recently to share his insights on the players and teams of the Negro Baseball League. First off, I am not the world's biggest baseball fan, so maybe I'm the last person to discover baseball was not invented by Abner Doubleday, one of those four bajillion incorrect things I heard while growing up. If this is news to you as well, listen up. As the story goes, Abner Doubleday was born in Cooperstown, New York in 1819 and created baseball sometime around 1839. Doubleday then went on to become a Civil War hero and baseball eventually became America's pastime. There was indeed an Abner Doubleday who grew up in upstate New York and served as a Union Major General in the Civil War, later becoming a lawyer and writer. However, he never claimed to have anything to do with baseball. In 1907, 16 years after Doubleday's death, a group led by Byron, Illinois-born A.G. Spaulding, was formed to determine baseball's true origins. Spalding not only played baseball with the Chicago White Stockings, the one that eventually became the Chicago Cubs, but also started Spalding Sporting Goods in Chicago. Based on the word of a man named Abner Graves, who claimed he went to school with Abner Doubleday when Doubleday invented baseball, the commission credited Doubleday. Way to be thorough. Major League officials and Cooperstown, New York businessmen used this flimsy connection to later establish the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, birthplace of Doubleday. Most historians agree that baseball was likely adapted from the English game of cricket long before Doubleday was falsely credited with inventing it. If you know anything about segregation in America over, you know, the last couple hundred years, it should not surprise you to know that baseball, America's pastime, was also segregated for more than half a century. Much of the reason for that had to do with an early, much-celebrated baseball player right here in Chicago. In 1883, the Chicago White Stockings were scheduled to play an exhibition game against the Toledo Blue Stockings. According to the book Black Baseball in America, when the White Stockings manager, Adrian Cap Anson, saw Fleetwood Walker, the African-American catcher for Toledo, Anson reportedly yelled, Get that N-word off the field. 
When told the White Stockings would forfeit the game and their share of the gate receipts if they refused to play, Anson backed down. Fleetwood Walker stayed on the field and played that day, but pressure from Anson resulted in the super-racist Gentleman's Agreement, an unwritten rule that barred African Americans from playing in the major leagues, which by the late 1880s was in full effect. Moses Fleetwood Walker was the first black major league player. Cap Anson's racist protest made Walker the last black major league player until 60 years later when, on April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson stepped onto the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Even without the opportunity to play in the major leagues, black ball players in the late 1800s found other ways to play the game. They created their own leagues. Areas with large African-American populations soon had teams with names like the New York Black Yankees, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Philadelphia Stars, Newark Eagles, Kansas City Monarchs, Memphis Red Sox, Atlanta Black Crackers, and the Birmingham Black Crackers. While Chicago had black baseball teams as far back as the early 1870s, reporting on them was pretty spotty. Here are a few names historians and sports fans may recognize. The Chicago Blue Stockings, the Chicago Unions, the Uniques, the Oaklands, the Gordons, and, starting in 1899, the Columbia Giants. Within two years, the talents of the Chicago Unions and the Columbia Giants were merged to create the Chicago Union Giants, the top Negro League in the Midwest, at least for now, done under the guidance of Frank C. Leland. Memphis-born Leland attended Fisk University in Nashville before moving to Chicago to pursue his baseball dreams, playing outfield with the Chicago Union's in the 1880s, eventually becoming manager of the unions before the merge with the Columbia Giants. This merge team would change their name to the Chicago Leland Giants in 1905. Now, I realize I haven't talked much about the Chicago American Giants or Rube Foster much yet, but I kind of needed to lay the groundwork to have all this make some sense. So thanks for your patience. Andrew Bishop Foster was born in Calvert, Texas in 1879, and by his late teens, he was a stocky six foot four. He also had become an impressive pitcher. After playing for a few Texas teams, Foster was picked up by the Philadelphia-based Cuban X-Giants. There he won a total of 58 games, including 44 straight victories. It was while playing for the Cuban ex-Giants in Philadelphia in 1902 that Foster acquired the nickname of Rube. During an exhibition game against the Philadelphia Athletics, a white professional team, Foster outpitched the Athletics star southpaw pitcher Rube Waddell. Fans began calling Foster the Black Rube, and the nickname stuck. In 1907, Rube Foster came to Chicago and joined Frank Leland's Chicago Leland Giants as playing manager. By 1910, convinced Leland was withholding money owed to the players, 
Foster broke away from Leland and wrestled away control of the team, partnering with a white saloon owner named John Shorling in a handshake deal. More on that in a bit. After achieving a mind-blowing 123-6 and record in 1910, the team was renamed the Chicago American Giants. Before we leave 1910, let's talk Chicago ballparks. Black baseball teams played at roughly 30 parks around the city during their heyday. Here are a few of those, many of which are long gone. Two of the earliest ballparks used by black teams were Lakefront Park, a.k.a. 23rd Street Park, which was on the corner of State Street and 23rd Street, and Ogden Park, which was off Ontario Street. Both were home to the Chicago Excelsiors in 1868. Grand Crossing Park at 76th and Cottage Grove was used by the Chicago Unions as their home field in 1890, and 1892. In between those years, in 1891, the Unions played at the Athletic Grounds at 76th and Langley. The Auburn Ballpark was once at the corner of 79th and Wentworth on the city's south side. Used by the Union Giants in 1901 as their home field, it later became home to the Leland Giants. On the north side, the Neeson Gunther 9 Ball Club played at Gunther Park, bounded by Clark, Leland, no relation to Frank Leland, and Ashland. This park was dedicated in 1905 and had wooden grandstands that could accommodate close to 5,000 fans. In 1909, when the Chicago Cubs played the Leland Giants in a three-game series, those games were played at Gunther Park. But, because Chicago, local residents living near Gunther Park staged a protest in 1907, complaining about the noise coming from the park on Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays during the season. Gunther Ballpark remained in use until 1913. It is still a park, although much quieter now, and is now called Chase Park. One of the other significant ballparks, certainly for the Chicago American Giants, was Southside Park, located on 39th Street between Wentworth and Princeton. Once the home of the White Sox, it had been left behind when the Sox moved to their new stadium at 35th and Shields, roughly a half mile away, in mid-season in July of 1910. When the Sox left their original Southside Park, Sox owner Charles Comiskey had the stands torn down. A 1941 Chicago Defender article claimed, quote, Comiskey's excuse was that he did not want another club so close to the White Sox grounds. Charles Comiskey heard bids from a number of interested parties for the now-vacant ballpark. One of those interested was Frank Leland whose team, the Leland Giants, had been playing at the Westside Ballpark, where the team now known as the Chicago Cubs once played, which meant many of the Southside African-American baseball fans had to travel across town to take in a Leland Giants game. Comiskey eventually agreed to an offer by John Shorling and Rube Foster to take over the Southside Park, 
to be used by the American Giants. Sidebar, many books, newspapers, and online articles claim that Comiskey sold the park to Shoreling because Shoreling was his son-in-law. I can find no record of any relation. And I'll also point out that Charles and Nan Comiskey had one child, and it was a son named John Lewis. Moving on. Converting the Southside Park would cost $15,000, about $450,000 in today's money, and once finished would hold 9,000 fans. It would also include locker rooms for home and visiting teams, complete with hot showers. Opening day at the newly named Shoreling Park was May 13, 1911, and due to inclement weather, only 3,000 fans turned up. The American Giants lost to the Spaldings, a team sponsored by sporting goods company owner Al Spaulding. Eventually, Chicago American Giants fever swept Chicago. According to Robert Cottrell's 2001 biography, The Best Pitcher in Baseball, The Life of Rube Foster, Negro League Giant, one Sunday afternoon in 1911, an overflow crowd of 11,000 showed up to watch the Chicago American Giants. A few blocks away, only 9,000 showed up to see the White Sox. Across town, the Chicago Cubs entertained a crowd of 6,000. In addition to playing other black teams, Rube Foster's American Giants often played minor league white teams to make some extra cash and fill gaps in their schedule. When they couldn't find teams in Chicago to play, they would travel to remote locations like Joliet, some 40 miles southwest, to take on that town's best players. When traveling Negro teams would come to Chicago, they often stayed at the Wabash YMCA at 37th and Wabash. Teams found that YMCAs across the nation would accommodate them without issue with all the amenities of a hotel, but at a less expensive rate. Rube Foster, who didn't have much of a formal education, wrote a series of columns in the black-owned Chicago Defender newspaper in 1919. He called out the challenges black baseball teams faced and stressed that an organized league would, quote, keep colored baseball from the control of whites and do something concrete for the loyalty of the race, end quote. According to a 2001 article by Larry Gross in the Chicago Defender, it was on February 13, 1920, that Rube Foster and six other businessmen met at the Paseo YMCA in Kansas City. Tired of the gentleman's agreement that kept African Americans out of the major leagues, each man at the meeting put up $1,000, nearly $14,500 in today's money, and the Negro National League was born. Foster was elected president of the league, controlling nearly every aspect of the new league, including which teams would get what players, team schedules, and equipment used, all of which had to be purchased from Foster. For his efforts, Foster took a 5% cut of all gate receipts. There were some team owners who objected to having to buy gear through Foster at slightly marked-up prices, 
but Foster explained it was the only way the league treasury could be kept at an operating level. Team owners also objected to the 5% gate fee, but this too went into the league treasury. While some players may not have appreciated these early trades to other teams, Rube Foster strived to promote competitiveness, believing that teams with poor records would also have poor attendance, which would affect everyone's revenues. In addition to the Chicago American Giants, other teams in the newly formed Negro National League included the Cuban Stars, Dayton Marcos, St. Louis Giants, Indianapolis ABCs, and the Kansas City Monarchs. The league would later expand to include teams in Philadelphia, Birmingham, Alabama, and Homestead, Pennsylvania. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. This new league, with proper backing and organization, saw great improvements for the teams. Players' salaries increased, and they received regular bonuses. Instead of rickety buses, teams often traveled on Pullman coaches. There were acknowledgments of the color barrier in baseball in the mainstream press. A June 1926 mention in the South Bend Tribune in South Bend, Indiana, about an upcoming game between the American Giants, referred to here as, quote, the greatest colored team in the world, end quote, and the South Bend Indians at Playland Park includes the following, quote, were it not for their color, many of the players on the American Giants would be in the American and National Leagues today, end quote. Managing the Chicago American Giants and the Negro National League consumed Foster. According to the recently released book, the 1920 Chicago American Giants, Foster's son remembered that his dad would work from 8.30 a.m. until nearly midnight during the time he managed both the American Giants and the Negro National League. While staying at a boarding house in Indianapolis in May of 1925, Rube Foster was overcome by a gas leak, but pulled to safety by concerned ballplayers. According to Rube's wife, he never fully recovered. In late August of 1926, Andrew Rube Foster was taken from his home at 4130 South Michigan Avenue in the Bronzeville neighborhood to a sanitarium in Kankakee. According to the article in the September 4th Chicago Defender, Foster was suffering from a nervous breakdown brought on by worries over baseball. It would also come out that Foster had attacked a friend with an ice pick and, according to his wife, suffered delusions that a World Series baseball game was in progress and that he was needed to pitch. 
with Foster hospitalized American Giants player Gentleman Dave Malarcher took over management of the team. Larcher had been playing with the team since 1920 as a third baseman and was a student of the managerial style of Rube Foster. Led by Dave Malarcher, the American Giants won the pennant and Black World Series in both 1926 and 1927. With Foster out of day-to-day operations and only a handshake deal between Rube and John Shorling, Shirling took over full operations of the American Giants, offering no compensation to Rube's wife and family. At a meeting of league owners in January of 1927, Rube Foster's wife Sarah tried to offer some hope that Rube would return, but the league leaders were preparing to move on without Rube. Rube Foster spent four years as a patient at the Kankakee Mental Hospital, dying there on December 9, 1930, at the age of 51. The Chicago Tribune reported that, quote, Foster was buried as he lived, the hero of thousands on the south side. Throngs on Sunday paid their last respects at St. Mark's Methodist Episcopal Church, 50th Street and Wabash Avenue, where the Reverend John B. Redmond delivered the eulogy. The auditorium was packed, while outside 3,000 stood in the snow and rain. John Green, a longtime Negro Leagues outfielder who played with the Chicago Union Giants and the Leland Giants, was quoted as saying, When Rube Foster died, Negro baseball died with him. Without the guidance of Rube Foster, the original Negro National League unraveled in 1931. The American Giants later played in the Negro Southern League, during which they would take home the pennant in 1932. The second Negro National League, winning a second-half championship there in 1934. And then the Negro American League from 1937 to 1952. In April of 1953, with Major League Baseball reintegrated, the team disbanded. The more than 40-year run of the Chicago American Giants is recognized as the best of all of the Negro League teams. Southside Park, also called Shoreling Park, home to the Chicago American Giants for 30 years, caught fire on Christmas Day in 1940 and burned to the ground. Andrew Rube Foster is buried in the Lincoln Cemetery in Blue Island, Illinois. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1981. Rube Foster expected much from his players, reportedly telling a friend, quote, We have to be ready when the day comes that the Major League finally reopens its doors to African Americans. It is unfortunate Foster did not live to see all his efforts pay off. In an event that seemed long overdue on December 20th, 2020, Major League Baseball announced that seven Negro Leagues were being recognized as Major Leagues. Statistics from leagues that were part of various seasons between 1920 and 1948 would be considered part of the Major League record books. 
The earliest league to be included is the first version of the Negro National League, founded by Rube Foster from the years 1920 through the end of 1931. If you live in the Kansas City, Missouri area or are ever traveling out that way, be sure to check out the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, founded in 1990 and dedicated to preserving the history of Negro League Baseball in America. listening to today's episode about Rube Foster and the Chicago American Giants. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd sure love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to a number of books and other items related to this subject and other parts of Chicago's amazing history if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Make sure to check out Chicago History Podcast's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, John. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in. Maybe take in a baseball game and stay safe. <laughs>